This evening we have the great privilege of continuing our study with the book of Haggai, and with the time that we have here together, we'll be looking at the final passage of Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, where we'll see the change in attitude of those of whom the Lord appointed the prophet Haggai to address. And to be more specific, this attitude change we'll see emphasized throughout this brief section. It did not occur apart from the transforming work of God within those of whom Haggai addressed. And before we look at these four verses in front of us tonight, let's quickly get caught back up to speed on what's leading us, what has led us to this moment in the book of Haggai. Remember, it had been 18 years since the decrees of Cyrus and 16 years since the altars and foundations of the temple had been restored. It was Darius who issued for the rebuilding of the temple. And many months ago when we began our study of Haggai, we learned in verse 1 that in the second year of King Darius in the sixth month, On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Haggai first addressed Zerubbabel, the civil ruler of the people, and then he spoke to Joshua, the high priest. Under these circumstances was where we first met the prophet of God, Haggai, whose words urged the people to this work, to the rebuilding task. Haggai was speaking to a people, addressing a people who had been stuck with a series of poor harvests, a fiscally crushed economy from set harvest and a people who were facing opposition to their efforts of rebuilding. Diligent, they were told to apply themselves and their work towards the temple's rebuilding. And what we know is that they were not diligent at all. Also, it's worth mentioning that there had been no prophetic voice on record since the time of the prophet Jeremiah. And now Haggai speaking to the people of God, it finally broke the dry spell of silence as it was that the restored community had indeed been the ones foreordained by God to hear their Lord's voice again. And how was it that the prophet of the Lord Haggai, how did Haggai address the people? Sternly and systematically. We see that Haggai first addressed uh, the two men responsible for getting things done. That was, again, the governor and the high priest. All the while invoking the reminder of their faithful covenant-keeping God by using the title, the Lord of Hosts as he spoke to the exiles, is not his, but remember this, this people. This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The exiles, this people that Haggai was sent to prophesy to, they lived in a state of not yet. A state that inevitably was the byproduct of unmet expectations, expectations that ultimately did not, as we know, meet reality. Even though the Lord of hosts had brought about their return from exile following the downfall of the Babylonian Empire, they turned to other priorities, giving them real estate in their lives. They were then left waiting for some opportune time, as if that moment has ever existed, to re-engage in the Lord's work. And all the exiles had to do was one thing. They had one task, one work, to rebuild the Lord's house. And also the last time we met, we noticed Haggai's appeal to the exiles, exhorting them, presenting them the word of God from the mouth of God as the prophet of God. And what I hope has happened is that even our most basic Bible scholars here this evening, I hope that we already know where we're going, as I assume, I hope, a verse from Isaiah 55, verse 11, has already come into most of your minds. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which 
I sent it. Friends, my aim this evening is to help us see this truth played out in the text before us. That this is exactly what happened after Haggai presented the word of the Lord to the Lord's people. It did not fall on deaf ears. And in turn, the prophet's proclamation, what we'll see is that it invoked a positive response from the community. And it began to take root as well as bear fruit in the hearts and the lives of those who heard it because that's what the word of God does. And we'll see this truth that the, words Lord, the, that the Lord's word does not return void in three distinct ways. We'll see the, the people's obedience. We'll see them obey the word. We'll see the people encouraged by the word. And we'll see the people act in response to the conviction of the Lord's word. Let's seek now the Lord's help as we prepare to understand God's word. Our Lord and our God, we we bless your name, your word. It is truth. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our way. You intend to build us up and equip us for every good work. Your word is inspired. Every word of it is God-breathed. Every word of it is without error. Every word of it is the final rule of our faith and life. So we pray by your spirit that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful truth from your word, Lord. And live that truth, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Commentator Robert Fawley summarized that the fundamental problem up to now for the exiles had not been disbelief in God. Nor had it been idolatry. Rather, he argues that God, who ought to have been at the center, well, the exiles pushed him to the margins. In the previous 11 verses, Haggai had pointed to the backwardness of the exiles' priorities. They were focused more on their own priorities rather than the Lord's. And so our passage picks up here in verse 12 with the prophet having just spoke to the exiles. And something remarkable plays out in the passage before us this evening. The people obeyed, our first point, the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. And we'll see as the text progresses that they in turn feared his presence. Look with me at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Twice, we've seen in the previous 11 verses, the exiles pressed by the Lord to consider their ways. And here in verse 12, we see... The people's obedience, having just had their consciences pricked by the prophet of the Lord, their response is swift, and it's obedient to the voice of the Lord, their God, and to the words of Haggai, the prophet sent by God. No longer this people, but now, what's the text tell us? With all the remnant of the people. Whereas in verse 1, we notice that only Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest are noticed Here we see that the rest of the community are recognized as equally participating. Something's changed. And what the author wants us to see in this picture is a picture of togetherness, of harmony, of unity. The people did not become reluctantly manipulated, nor were the leaders convinced by their people to eventually do something, to act. Further, by employing the term remnant, we instantly can make the connection of prior prophets who also used this term when referring to the faithful core who remained after the judgment of the Lord on his unfaithful people. 
In everyday life, writes one commentator, we usually associate the term remnant with the short lengths of cloth which are sold off cheaply in fabric shops or on market stalls. These are the pieces which are left over at the end of a roll of material when most of it had been sold. A remnant is something left over from a much larger amount, he concludes. And so we can conclude that it's this remnant of survivors from the community before God's judgment fell upon them who are the recipients of the restored blessing. As they prove their spiritual identity by their obedience, by their response, the prophet Micah also used the word remnant in Micah 5, verses 7 through 8, to describe the faithful few within the nation of Israel. Having not only physically returned to the land, but have also returned to the Lord, the people have. And now some of you might be tempted to ask, but how do we really know from one verse that they returned to the Lord? Well, two months later, the prophet Zechariah was to say that these same people, in Zechariah 1.3, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. The verb translated return, it also, it means repent. Further, look no further than the exile's response. How is God described here? The text says that the Lord is their God. They claim him now. This not only underlines God's grace, but also their renewed relationship with the Father. The people's returning to the Lord is precisely what the Lord sent the prophet Haggai to do, and we see it demonstrated by their obedience. And while we're similar actions by God's people before, we've seen them as Israel responded with, all the Lord has spoken, we will do in Exodus 19, verse 8, after the Lord required to be obeyed at Sinai. We know of of many frequent failures after that fact to uphold that commitment, that we'll do whatever, and then they didn't. So with the people of God having last heard the prophetic voice of the Lord during the time of Jeremiah, who in verse 21 of chapter 2 said, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your, from your youth, he wrote, that you did not obey my voice. This post-exilic people, what do we see? That they've responded differently. Now the exiles of whom the prophet Haggai spoke to are a throwback to the days of youthful devotion, reminiscent to those mentioned in Jeremiah 2 in previous chapters of the book. Jeremiah 2, verse 2. I will remember you, the kindness, he wrote, of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Friends, what the remnant obeyed was the voice of the Lord, which came to them from the words of Haggai. In Acts 10, verse 44, we notice something similar occurring in the account of Peter while he's speaking at Cornelius' house. The verse reads, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. The voice of the Lord came to the people as they recognized it was indeed the Lord. By conviction, this is important, by conviction of the Spirit who had indeed commissioned the prophet Haggai to speak. Haggai's proclamation had produced in them a long and a deep and a sincere conviction of their own failure, of their own negligence, and henceforth left them with zero doubt about the genuineness of his status as a prophet 
of the Lord. They said, this guy showed up. We weren't sure about him. Now we're sure. He was sent by God. And what's true for them is also true for us here this evening, is it not? Sometimes God's word, it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he tells us that scripture reproves us. And in their returning to the Lord, the people, having been reproved by the word of God, acknowledged that what the prophet Haggai was saying, it was correct. And the people feared, it tells us, the presence of the Lord. Showing that their hearts are genuine in their inclination towards, towards the Lord, we see that his fear is often used to refer to that attitude of reverence and awe that should characterize us all before a holy and just God. But furthermore, what's Psalm 111 verse 10 tell us? We all know this verse, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Or what about Proverbs 1 verse 7, where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which re- refers to a true and saving response to Yahweh God. The people's returning to the Lord was nothing short of the fear of the Lord, which was the beginning of wisdom. When people have a holy fear of God, are they acting unwisely? No. It's the, the opposite. They're acting wisely. And this attitude is crucial as the prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 66, those first two verses, one and two. The trembling of the word of God fulfills the condition for his dwelling with his people. We see this when Solomon built the permanent replacement of the portable tabernacle, the glory cloud. What did it do? It again filled the structure. The Lord's presence was the pledge of the fulfillment of his covenant promises. Commentator Michael Bentley said, When a people fear the Lord, they have a desire from said fear to please their Lord. When anyone truly loves God, there's something wrong if they do not want to please him, he argues. And pleasing God is always shown by obedience. In Genesis 22, we see that Abraham proved that he feared God when he was willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar of sacrifice, thus obeying the voice of God. And instead of shrinking from their task for fear of hostile neighbors, the exiles returned, and then the returned exiles began to fear the one whose power was far greater than their oppressors. They had a new awe, a new reverence for the God who in Haggai 2 verse 6, as we'll see later, as well as verse 22, it tells us the God who shakes the heavens and the earth, and this same God is the same God who overthrows kingdoms as well as nations. And in verse 13, immediately after their resolve to obey the Lord, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. It's in this verse where we see our second point, that the people were encouraged by the word of the Lord. As the Lord gave them a wonderful promise, I am with you, says the Lord. When the people obeyed God in their hearts, when we obey God in our hearts, when you obey God in your heart, you're given the promise of God's presence. Messenger here is being the same root word translated as angel. 
And this messenger of the Lord is speaking a new message of encouragement to his people. As the prophets, being God's messengers, they do not say something they've conjured up on their own, yet only relay what the Lord has entrusted them to say. And seeing their response, the Lord took the initiative to replace his message of rebuke, this people, with one of encouragement. I am with you. And here this this phrase indicates the resumption of the relationship between God and mankind, severed by the fall and restored in that beautiful covenant, the one of grace. The God who is with them is also the God who is for them. The God who is with them is also the God who is for them. And therefore they may, knowing that, they may find courage. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, again, this is a softball. Who can be against us? I am with you. It also functioned as a course of consolation and encouragement in times of difficulty as well as danger for those characters of the Old Testament. The people were not just encouraged here, though, but assured that God had committed himself to them. And we've seen this assurance, this promise throughout Scripture. It was Jacob when charged by his father Isaac to go to Paddan, Aram, that the Lord said in Genesis 28, verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I, he says, have spoken to you. This assurance as well as assistance of the divine presence, it also extends to the most difficult circumstances of life. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And that the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. It was also Jacob, we know, who upon walking from that, or waking from that dream two verses later in Genesis 28, verse 17, what does he do? He wakes with a holy fear, and he was afraid, the verse says. And his response, the verse tells us, he says, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is exactly, friends, what I want us to see this evening. This is exactly the response of the exiles. God has also repeatedly used the promise of his presence to encourage those whom he has called to particular tasks that might invoke in them a sense of fear or danger. This was the message he brought to Moses when he was confronted with the burning bush. To Joshua when he succeeded Moses as the leader of Israel. To Joshua and Caleb as they went before the people afraid to go into the promised land. They said there might be giants there. To Jeremiah when he called him to be a prophet in difficult times. And this is the very message that our Lord Jesus Christ ends the Great Commission with when he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But even more than this assurance is implied here in verse 13, suggests one commentator. He says, God, being with him, was bound up in rebuilding his house, not simply in terms of wood and stone but in terms of changed hearts, which responded to his word. This word was also the assurance of protection against the opposition we read of in Ezra 4 and 5. It was a reassurance 
that the work would be done. Why? Because they were not doing it in their own energies. Notice how the promise comes to encourage them after they had inwardly returned to the Lord and resolved to act. Returned, they obeyed, they were encouraged. The Lord is with you while you were with him, we learn in Second Chronicles 15 verse 2, as it demonstrates a condition for the enjoyment of this blessing. So what does the Lord do next? We see in verse 14, he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They obeyed, they were encouraged, and here we see that they acted. The Lord made the word effective by working within the people to change their attitudes. And in our last point this evening, we, we notice how the people act in response to this change of attitude. Twice already, again, the exiles have been told to consider your ways. And in considering their ways, we've seen how Haggai's message to consider their ways, it made them think. That's what it was supposed to do. They thought deeply about their lives, and they began to pray. And as they prayed, we've noticed how they started to fear the Holy Lord. When God sent his prophet Haggai among the people with the message of the Lord, did we expect things not to happen? No, we saw things happen. God's spirit was at work within them, and they were discomforted. More than that, we see in verses 14 and 15 specifically that they were stirred up to action. They were woken up. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And again, we see that all were involved. It wasn't just a high priest. It wasn't just a governor. Not just the civic and religious leaders, but the whole remnant, the text tells us, of all the people. Once lethargic, unable to keep themselves going in their own strength. Now literally woken up as Haggai spoke as the Lord provides what is required. As his words are the audible sign of the divine activity in the hearts of both leaders and people. For he is the God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. But this is only part of the whole story. Twenty years before the Lord had intervened, we know in the life of Cyrus, the king of Persia, he had stirred up the heart of Cyrus to permit the exiles to return. And at the same time, the Lord had also moved the heart of the group of exiles who had volunteered to return to Babylon. God was not going to permit his purposes to be thwarted or frustrated or doomed. And again, he acts in their midst to arouse and encourage his people. Zechariah 4, verse verse 6, it tells us why. The verse reads, Not by my might, nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Hammering home the point that it's not only by the action of the Spirit of God that the rebuilding project will be completed. And while 23 days isn't exactly the sort of immediate obedience parents expect from their children, for the exiles, their response, friends, was praiseworthy. Verse 15 ends with the dates that demonstrate to us their resuming of the work took place on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. 
And if you ask folks getting work done on their homes or looking to have work done, three weeks from conception to beginning work on the job site is remarkable, whether by ancient or modern standards. In those 23 days, the people had stirred up the rest of the Jews to work. They had quickly finished off gathering their harvest. As this happened, it tells us, during the sixth month. They had also gone up to the mountains to cut, trim, carry down timber, as well as sorted out the building materials that had lain rotten for the past 16 years. If you're like me, I I can't remember where I put something 16 days ago, let alone 16 years. But the exiles had it all sorted out in three weeks. And what it clearly shows is that this would have never happened without divine intervention. So how do we apply this text this evening? I've got five points of application. Fearing the consequences of our sins is not an, not a, uh, an irrational reaction. Because if God is a holy God who is pure, and we are sinfully self-centered, fearing the consequences of our sin is the most rational response in the world to be deeply afraid. And like the exiles who, in spite of their sin, there is immediate restoration of our relationship when we come before the Lord and repent. The Lord is not some harsh taskmaster who expects perfection, who's never pleased, right? Like a father waiting seemingly for his kids to step out of line so he can punish them for every minor infraction. He's asked them to make their bed. Well, they didn't tuck in the corner. Get back up there. On the contrary, he knows our hearts and the sincerity of our actions. You tried. Let me help you. And as he told the prophet Haggai, I am with you, he too was with us, comforting us with our sin so that he can forgive us and show us his mercy and grace when in our hearts we truly seek after his repentance. Another point of application, like the people's response, so too must we not see the sorrow over our sin as an end in itself. Godly sorrow is good and right. This is true. But it's never an end in itself, and our response to sin should mirror the people's as the appropriate response to sin is renewed obedience. The appropriate response to sin is renewed obedience. Another point of application. Do not be deceived into thinking that your obedience is ever spurred upon by a better understanding of your inner self or some new age practice or worldly mantra brought about through self-care or Mother Earth. No, whenever we obey the Lord, even if only for a split second, it's because God has given us the desire and he's given us the strength to do so. Chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, title, the chapter titled Of Good Works, 16.3, it outlines this reality for us. Their ability, ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. God alone, friends, is sovereign over both our sanctification as well as our justification. Our fourth point of application What, friends, is your Babylon? What makes you comfortable, too comfortable to obey God's word and put it into practice? 
What areas in your life have you decided are untouchable? That's mine. Please don't take that. Actually, I won't let you take that. Where have you gotten soft and fallen asleep to God's voice? It was the Apostle Paul who, writing to the church at Corinth, he exhorts them to come out from among them and be like them. No, he tells them to separate themselves, to be separate from them. We should do the same. We should obey the call to disassociate with the ungodly associations that cause us to stumble or, like the exiles, grow lazy in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of obedience. And lastly, just as the Lord promised to be with Moses, we saw he promised to be with Jacob, he promised to be with Joseph, he promised to be with Joshua. He too promises to be with us. As we know of the realized promise of Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 verse 14, that being the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, God with us. The same mighty God who delivered our forefathers from all their enemies, he promises to meet the demands of the present and also the future. For we know that he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, bless your word. Use it in our hearts and in our lives. Change us by it, Father. We, we urge you to do this. And Jesus.